Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. The expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks, and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Christ. It's, it's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Robers, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts. In August 1995, Less Than Jake released Pezcore. This indie punk ska record blew up, quickly putting the band on Capitol Records' radar. Pezcore was released on the small indie label Dill Records. The man that discovered them was Mike Park, our guest today. Mike started playing ska in the 80s. His band Skink and Pickle would be one of the biggest DIY ska bands of the 90s. The band formed their own label, Dill Records, but it was Mike that discovered many of the bands and did a lot of the work. When he left Skank and Pickle, he took these bands with him and formed Asian Man Records, a label that a lot of people look back on fondly as releasing some of the best ska bands of the 90s. Though Asian Man didn't release a lot of ska, the bands Mike put out were always amazing. It was quality over quantity. Since then, Asian Man has continued to release decades of great DIY bands in a variety of genres. We've said it before, but Mike Park is the person that got both of us into ska and into ska punk. Definitely. I remember the first time I saw Skank and Pickle was at the Playhouse in Morgan Hill. I have no idea who else played. I bought a olive green world tour t-shirt at that show. I remember they opened with I Miss the Bus. Mike was wearing a gigantic oversized New Kids on the Block shirt, which... <laughs> I thought was so such a weird choice that it was awesome. Yeah. I mean, New Kids on the Block was like the antithesis of anything cool at that point. And here was this front man in this band wearing this shirt. It was awesome. And then I got grounded for going to that show. Oh, was it worth it? Oh, it was totally worth it. Did you go to that show? Oh, I was definitely there. Nice. I have seen Skank and Pickle. God, I don't even know. Because I went on tour with them in, in, the, in 95 as a roadie, so... And I, in addition to that, I, I have seen them a dozen, maybe more than that at times in addition to that. So, yeah. Did Mike think you were a good roadie? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, I don't know. We should have asked him. We didn't ask him, though. Yeah. I, I also worked for Mike on the Plea for Peace tour as a stage manager. And I also don't think he liked the job that I did on that. <laughs> we should have asked him. All right, Mike. What is your first memory of me? 
Let's let's get a little <laughs> let's get a little self indulgent. My first memory of you, I believe, is when we went to Berkeley. Was I living in Berkeley or no? You came to Berkeley. No, you lived in Berkeley. I lived in Berkeley. You came and, and to Berkeley. I, yeah, with Sanam. No, what was no, no. It was with Nate. Nate. Okay. Oh wow. Um, and I don't know what we did. We probably just went down Telegraph and went record shopping. No, we went to Kevin Dill's house. Oh my God. You you were like, uh, we gotta go. You gotta meet Kevin. <laughs> wow, what a what a magical day that must have been. I remember we went to um Royal Jelly Donuts <laughs> <laughs> and uh both both you and him were very excited for me to he- meet his mom. Yes. And I remember I brought a uh Saved by the Bell board game and we played that for a little while. I don't remember that at all, but that all sounds wonderful. You guys were both extremely excited for me to go to Royal Jelly Donuts. Like you guys, and like, I remember it was like, when I go into the, you guys were like, look at the menu, just look at the menu. And I guess because it had, they had like fried, <laughs> fried foods, like chicken and stuff. That was like the funniest thing in the world to you guys. <laughs> fish and chips. I know they had fish. And chips. <laughs> yeah. What about Adam? What's your first memory of Adam? I think I remember him at at my house when I lived in Cupertino and flat planet played and I'd seen flat planet a few times. So I didn't, I didn't recognize this tall guy in the band (laughs) just screaming. So that was my first memory of Adam. Mm -hmm. So that was um, monkey Emmy three thirty flat planet and rudiments. Is that, was that the lineup slapstick skank and pickle? No rudiments. Wait, slapstick played. Yeah. Wow, I don't remember that. Well, I don't know what to tell you guys. <laughs> <laughs> I remember Skank and Pickle played first. Yes. Because you guys were just like, we're just going to play and get it over with. Yeah. And then Flat Planet played. Then MUT30. And then I think I had to go at that then point. Then probably Slapstick then. My ride, my ride needed to leave. Damn, Slapstick played? You missed out. That's upsetting. It was what, in their words... It was the best show they had ever played in their lives. <laughs> what happened? Was it just that like those bands were on tour and they needed a place to play and there just wasn't one? So we just did it at that house? I can't remember exactly. I know they were staying at, they were on tour and they were staying over my house. And I think we just decided, let's just put on a show, like a, a house show for fun. Like have a, have a barbecue and just have fun. So you lived there too, because I just remembered as Curtis's house. Yeah, so it was me, Curtis, this guy named Cam, and this guy named Joel. And then when I moved out, Jerry moved in. Jerry from Skank and Pickle. It was a wonderful time. That was a legendary show in my mind. I remember Rudy showed up late or something, maybe, or didn't have a bass. I don't remember. There was some issue with our bass and Rudy that like almost made it not happen, our performance. That would have been devastating. <laughs> <laughs> the audience would have rioted. <laughs> All right. So I think I know the story, but tell me the origin of the pickle drawing and the name Skank and Pickle, because I think they go hand in hand, don't they? First year at junior college, De Anza Junior College. I had a biology class and I was doodling in the book. There was like foods that preserved well. And I drew arms and legs on a pickle. And then the guy next to me said, oh, it's a skank and pickle. And <laughs> I, I just remember here after hearing that, thinking, oh, that's going to be, I'm going to use that as a band name. And that guy was, his name was Shannon Smith. 
his dad is Kurtwood Smith, who played Red Foreman on that 70s show and also was Clarence Boddicker in the Robocop movie. Nice. And, and uh, now he's a, he's a MAGA Trumper. <laughs> oh, not, no, really? Not, oh, not Kurtwood Smith, not Red. Red Foreman is not. His son is, which is crazy. It's usually the other way around, but uh, yes. And the original bass player for Skanker Pickle is a like a frontline anti-vaxxer, anti-maxer that's masker that's uh, been in the news plentiful the last year. Yeah, Aaron and I talk about talk about that a lot. He he's protesting, uh, or he's uh, wants the uh, mayor recalled. I don't know. Just I don't know exactly what's going on, but <laughs> him and like a dozen people or something. I'm scared of him, to be honest. <laughs> when did Skanka Pickle did Skanka Pickle start shortly after that then? Yeah, so that was eighty-eight when I had that class. And then the the end of eighty-eight, I started playing music with Mike Mattingly, the original bass player, in a different band. That band broke up really quickly after I had joined, and then me and Mike decided to start a band. So we started practicing at the end of 88 i think it was in december and it was just a three-piece it was it was me on guitar mike on bass and chuck chuck phelps on drums and um we just had a lot of fun i remember we practiced for hours and i mean i hate practicing current current me hates practicing in 2021 but man that was so much fun just we played for so long and just had a blast and but we decided let's find a guitarist and um, that's when Lynette came in and I moved to saxophone and we, we were a four piece for like a good six months. We even recorded a demo as a four piece. You know, I remember too being like a teenager and like band practice was so much fun. I could just practice for just hours, but yeah, the idea of practicing now sounds like the worst torture imaginable. It's terrible. I hate the, I don't want to practice. Like, why has it changed so much? I have no idea, but I don't like practice. <laughs> I remember being in high school too. Like, I would, um, I had like a drum pad, like a little thing, and I would just sit in my room and just practice my drum chops, just my, just like it was a snare, you know, mm -hmm. like a silent snare. I would do that for, for hours. Just, I, I can't even imagine doing that now. <laughs> priorities have changed and like vianelli um he would like he would practice his guitar endlessly and he actually went through this period of time where he spent all of his free time like studying music theory and practicing all the different chord positions and then like w different ways that he could rearrange chord progressions and then just practice them over and over and over and over again so this is the guitarist for Flat Planet for those yeah. things. Yeah. If you're wondering who Mike Vianelli is, now he's a recluse living in the mountains of Oregon. No, no, he lives in he lives in Phoenix now. I just I was trying to make something up. I <laughs> he did used to live in the mountains of Oregon though. Okay. See, <laughs> see, I got it right. Do you remember Mike idolizing Lynette? Yes, I do. I remember a lot of people idolizing Lynette, actually. I know, like, all the the monkey people, like Curtis, for sure, was a big Lynette fan. And well-deserved, because she was a shredder guitar player. 
Yeah, well, Mike Mike had a legit crush on her too. Well, I could see that too. She was a beautiful lady. Um, you know, not your typical model beauty, but just like pretty woman. She just happened to be six foot one and hundred and eighty pounds. She was like she should have been in Game of Thrones. <laughs> Did you ever see the prom pictures that Mike Vinelli made? I think you guys showed me like the uh Photoshop of him putting Lynette's face on. Yeah, on his on his prom photos, he did yeah. it. And he br- he brought it and he showed it to her, uh-huh. and she thought it was funny. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and then, like, uh, I think uh, I think she showed. I think she, I think he gave it to her, and he put she put it on her refrigerator because uh, Mike told me that her uh, her girlfriend came up to him. She says, "Oh, you, you're on a refrigerator." <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. You went to school, like high school with Lynette, right? You and Lars? Yeah, me, Lars, and Lynette. Lynette was one grade younger than me, but we were the same age. I think we we're two months apart age-wise. Uh, we had worked at a phone soliciting place for the San Francisco Chronicle Examiner newspaper. We worked the afternoon shift, which was the most undesirable shift. And a lot of times it was just me and Lynette in the office and the supervisor would just leave <laughs> and it was it was awesome we, we were terrible at it we could not sell a newspaper if our life depended on it <laughs> but we would just talk about music and stuff instead of calling people was it always like going to be like were you, were you like wanted to do a ska band specifically from you know whenever you started playing music not from the beginning i think the beginning i was just uh when I first started to learn how to play guitar, I I just liked alternative music. So whether it be like Depeche Mode or The Cure or R.E.M., I was just playing music. But when I got into ska, like I'd say my junior year was when I really started getting into ska. And that was like 1985 into 1986. And that's when I was like, OK, I'm going to play ska. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was all in. I was into the fashion I was into the um, the dance, like they would hold dances. There was a place in downtown Campbell called the Odd Fellows Hall, and they would. Ju- there was a group of kids that had a had a like a monthly dance called Cool for Cats, and they would just spin reggae, soul, and ska, and it was everyone's dressed up, all all mods and skinheads, and you would just dance. It was awesome. Nice. So um, what what were the bands that really hooked you into ska? I think my first like real love was Bad Manners. I had seen the movie Dance Craze at the Camera One Theaters um, in downtown San Jose. And it was a double feature with Stop Making Sense. And it was the first and only time I had seen people dancing in a movie theater. And the band that stood out to me was Bad Manners because of the front man, Buster Blood Vessel, he was just so animated with his his tongue sticking out his tongue and just he was like this larger than life figure on on the screen. So the next day I went to the local record store, Streetlight Records, and I, I found the cassette class with a K. And that that album is amazing. Just all the hits are on it. Lip up fatty, 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 special brew. Mm-hmm. And I wore that tape out. And from there, I was on a quest to find two-tone records. So it was like I had to find everything, the selectors, the specials, the beat, madness, and 
I had everything. I had the full collection for sure. What was your first like non two-tone ska discovery? I think it was, it had to have been like either the untouchables or fishbone. And I'm trying to think who I saw first. I think I saw fishbone first. Um, but those two bands really went hand in hand. Like they were equals in my mind early on, at least because it was so exciting. The, the touchables definitely had a more mod, um, imagery to them. Fishbone was just kind of just so wild and crazy. They, there was, there really no like barriers to their music, but, but even though they were, um attracting a lot of ska fans i what i liked about the untouchables was the the amount of mods that would be at the show and what i liked about fishbone was just the the chaos of their shows but it definitely turned it i say they were equals at the beginning but within a year it was all fishbone and that was the band out of any band i've ever seen from from that day till present day there's no band that has uh, influenced me more, at least on a live uh, medium. I, I've seen, I haven't seen Fishbone probably as much as you, but I remember just in the in the different times I've seen them, like them being so different, like show to show. Like sometimes they were just played like long funk jams. Other times it was just nothing but fast ska songs. You know, it was just like it just seemed to me like they were just making their set list up. No, they write. Norwood writes the set list. Okay. It's, it's very structured. He's he always writes the set list. Skank into the beat for many years was always the second song, regardless. So you'd always have that to look forward to. Um yeah, I wasn't a fan of the long funk jam era. <laughs> I had seen them a couple times and it was just like, man, it's we're 20 minutes deep in this concert. They're on song number two, and it's like <laughs> this sucks. I was not into it. It it was hard to see that because a band you put so high on a pedestal, the expectations are, I think, unfair. And so even to this day, I still have those images from 1985 and 86. And I know it's not fair to compare a teenaged Angelo Moore to a 55-year-old Angelo Moore. Um what he did on stage was ridiculous. Yeah, there's no front man in the history of music that can do that did what he did. Do you have any like specific memories from those days that you um, that like were burned in your brain? Yeah, just the, the Fillmore in San Francisco, him just stage diving and having the crowd take him all the way into the to the back of the Fillmore, him climbing up into the balcony. And then jumping off the balcony. <laughs> <laughs> so and not, not like, I've, you know, you see these guys do like, I've seen guys just do terrible stage dives, like like so-called rock and roll uh, celebrities where even like these hip hop stars are starting to do stage dives, but they're the worst stage dives. I saw this one guy like baby do like a feet first plunge into the crowd. Like <laughs> Angelo's jumping off balconies doing suicide flips. And not missing a beat. He's got his microphone and it's like, as soon as he jumps, like the band knows like, okay, we break into the next, next part of the song and Angelo's up and singing. And like, and he's also back on stage so fast. Like he's just flipping doing like cartwheels on top of the crowd and he's back on stage. And it's like, what does, what the heck just happened? 
<laughs> Amazing. Yeah. And it's it it sucks because I want I wish there was some more like professional edited video. I'm sure they've got tons of footage. I wish they would put out a professional uh video of all their old concerts so people could experience that. Uh it, of course it'll never be the same as being there, but man, those were special times. So you guys were a four piece initially. Um Tell me about, so at some point you decide you tap Lars to join the band because you realize you need, you want a little more horns in the band. So we started as a four piece and I can't remember exactly how Lars got into the, to the band. I know we had played Gilman street as a four piece and Lars came to the show and just came up and toasted for a couple songs. I remember the energy being drastically better once he got on stage and then I had asked him because he played brass. He played tuba in in high school. And so I thought maybe he could play trumpet or something. And then eventually we settled on valve trombone. And that's how Lars got into the uh, equation, came into the equation. And he's great. Super talented. I don't think I've ever seen another ska band with a valve trombone. The Abrupters have one. The Abrupters do? Okay. Yes, there you go. And then so, okay, let's hear the Jerry origin story. So, yeah, so we, there used to be a place on the Hate Street called Fly Me to the Moon Saloon. that used to do ska shows and it was a cool place to see, see shows. And we had opened up for, gosh, I can't remember, maybe Bim Scala Bim. Mm -hmm. And Jerry just happened to be at that show. I, I didn't talk to him at the show, but then... I went to see No Doubt play at the Ashkenaz, which is the small little like kind of how would you describe it, Adam? It's a, like a almost like a community center for older folks that do like folk dancing. Sort of, yeah. They do a lot of reggae, reggae shows, and yeah, folk type stuff. It's all it's all like raw wood on the outside. And uh, so they played a show with the Skeletones, and then. Jerry was at the bar and he's like, Hey, aren't, aren't you in skank and pickle? I'm like, yeah, yeah. We started talking and then he said he played a, played a trombone. I said, Hey, you should, you should play with us. And then, so he came to practice the next day and then he was in, I think instantly we're like, yeah, you're in. And he was, I remember being him, him being so happy. He's like, Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you, were you guys immediately taken by his personality. I think it took a while. I remember I had gone with him to L.A. We had a show in L.A. and he drove his Buick Saber separately and I went with him. And it was, uh, I, he, that's what I realized. He's a little different, a little different guy. <laughs> but it was something you had to grow to love because it is a, it's a, it's a trip. He's a trip. Um, I just remember him like pointing out all this. It was a night drive that we did and he was just like pointing out all the stars. He's like, oh, that's that's so-and-so star. I'm like, I don't, I don't know. What to, I don't care. Terribly, I said, I don't care. No, I didn't, I didn't say that to him. But uh, <laughs> I realized again, yeah, this is a, a different, uh, different breed of awesomeness that I'm experiencing. So one time, well, when, when I was on tour with Skank and Pickle, when I roadied for you guys, and then we did uh, the show, one of the shows in Colorado, my friend Bruce came out to the show. And so, you know, you guys had been listening to the Sammy Sodi tapes, right? Mm -hmm. But Bruce had would contributed the English guy. That was his character. Mm -hmm. 
And Jerry was obsessed with him. He kept talking to me about Sammy Sodi. And then I told him, I said, hey, the English guy is going to come to the show because he lived in Colorado. <laughs> and so we're behind, we're behind, it was like the theater, I think you played in Denver, that one. We're outside talking and Jerry comes out, he's like, ooh. And then Bruce goes, hello, like in his English accent. Uh-huh. And then, then he just immediately goes back to talking normal. And we're like out there for a long time just talking. And he's talking in his normal American accent. Uh-huh. And then like later, Jerry comes up and he's like, man, the English guy does an amazing American accent. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> I love it. Was it when you met and started connecting to Rick Bondi that you started touring or did you get out of town at all before that? Yeah, we had gotten out of town before that. Um, it was, I feel like it was just Southern California though. I remember one time we took Lynette's stepdad's truck and it wasn't a full size truck. It was like one of the smaller trucks. So all our gear in the back and me, it might've been before God, there was Jerry in the band, but me and Lars sat in the back of the truck all the way to Riverside outside in the middle of the night. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember Lars, you know, it's hard sitting in the back of a truck for seven hours. I remember one time, like somewhere on the five in the middle of the night, just Lars just standing just straight up, like next to the front of the truck. And like, it's so dangerous, first of all, but we, we so many things like that, just like whatever it took to get to a, a gig, we would, we would do it. Um, but yeah, it wasn't until we had met our first booking agent that we started to traverse across the United States and start doing some uh, like serious touring. Did you do the booking before uh, you got Rick Bondi? <sighs> Did I, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but if I had to bet good money, I would say yes. Cause I think I did all the business like me and meeting me and Mattingly did, but I think I just had a better grasp of what was good versus what Mattingly knew what was good. The story of Rick Bondi is uh, he saw you guys played at Slim's, right? Mm-hmm. You were, he- you were headlining or you were opening for uh, Eric Din's. We were headlining. Okay. And also oh, Eric band Hobo. Yeah. So this is the, the, the band after the Uptones broke up, they started a more like a, just a rock based band. And so, okay. He saw the Uptones play at the Earth Day Festival and wanted to manage them. Um, oh, I, I didn't know that. Yeah. This is, this is the story he, uh, cause you know, his, his, his history is with like jam bands and stuff like right. that, bar bands, mm-hmm. but he was at the Earth Day Festival. He saw the Uptones. He, he knew they were local. He didn't realize that they were basically had already broken up and this was like a reunion show or their last show or something. And then he's like, I want to, I'm going to manage this band. And then, so he goes and I think, I think Eric said, we're, we're broken up, but we have this new band and we're, we're playing at Slim's. So, but he saw you guys and because, because Hobo weren't playing ska music, but you guys were, so he saw you guys and he's just like, Oh, this is, I, I want to manage this band. Yeah. I remember I remember I was at the front of the stage at Slim's like packing up and him coming up and just going, Hey, my name's Rick. Um, I'm a booking agent. I'd be very interested in working with you. Here's my card. And that was exciting. Their, their office was in Emeryville, California, which is a bo- on the border of Berkeley, Oakland. And we went into their offices. It was a agency at the time it was called Roth bond and associates. And we sat down and said, we want a tour. 
they kind of told us the pitfalls of the love-hate relationships that we will um, kind of discover as we started touring. You'll love it at first, and then some of you are going to hate it. But <laughs> uh, so we, so we went. We were off and running, and uh, we kind of learned together, like how to because you, as you said, they were predominantly like a bar band booking agent, and then they turned into. He he had branched out and started his own agency. He moved to Lake Tahoe and called it the Tahoe Agency. But he had so many ska bands in the industry, they would just call them the Skahoe Agency. Yeah, I heard that it was uh, Billy Spunk that d- dubbed that name of uh, the Tahoe Agency. Ah, good old <laughs> Billy. But yeah, he uh, represented everybody. I think at one time he did Real Big Fish, Lesson Jake. Blink 182, uh, Goldfinger, Let's Go Bowling, Cherry Poppin' Daddies. So it was very, uh, very much a 90s punk ska label uh, agency. But it started with Skang and Pickle. You were the first ska act. Yes. Right? Yes. Okay. So he gets you on the road, but he's putting you in the, in the bar slash jam band circuit initially, right? Yes. So tell, explain what that's like for people. It's weird. So you play, I can't even describe it. Unless you've experienced it, uh, it's hard to describe. So we played like a lot of ski resorts. Like we would go to Colorado and play like Breckenridge, Telluride, Vail, Aspen. And a lot of times <laughs> we would do like multiple nights. And if you drank, like for the band members that drank and partied, they loved it because it was just free beer. Um, and then if you if you snowboarded or skied, you'd usually get free um, lift tickets and rentals. So it was kind of like this perfect situation for some of the band members. But for me, I hated it. I remember like I would sing at the wall at some times because I just just hated it so much. Um, how do I, how can I explain? People were into it though. Like people would go off, but it was just like drunk 21 and over beer in hand going off type of uh, atmosphere. And I, I just was, I was not into it at all. Like you weren't, you weren't building a lasting fan base or anything, right? You were just sort of, at least in my mind, I wasn't. The others would say, would argue that, Hey, anytime someone sees you, that's a positive, you know, we're, we're making new fans because we would go back and it would grow. Um, and then, you know, these places would, what would want us to play three nights. And it was like, Oh God, <laughs> not three <laughs> nights. <laughs> uh, and we'd have to play multiple sets a lot. Of, so these are the type of places also you do multiple sets like, Oh, here's our third set. And Mike Mattingly was against playing songs over again. So we'd have to learn three sets worth of music and i was like let's just play the songs over again who cares (laughs) but he wasn't he wasn't down with that i remember playing one of those um ski resort shows and getting altitude sickness you can't catch your breath the air's thinner do you remember experiencing any of that no no i was just a far superior far superior in like (laughs) endurance and link 80 played a ski resort though i could see that yeah it was with um it was with falling sickness voodoo glow skulls and 10 foot pole okay and i remember um we thought it would be really funny since it was like summertime but it was all snowy and cold for us to all wear tank tops and shorts 
And then they had given us a bunch of Red Bull that was backstage. So we had all pounded like three or four Red Bulls. And so the, <laughs> we came out the gate like, you know, going crazy for like three songs. And then we were all just dying. Nobody could catch their breath. Everybody felt sick. <laughs> See, I don't blame the altitude. I blame the Red Bull. Yeah, probably that too. <laughs> did you immediately hate these shows or did you were they fun at first to you? Yeah, when we first started going out because because they were a bar band agency, they didn't know anything else but bars. Yeah, I had fun because I was just playing music and you're young and just getting to see places you'd never seen before. So, that was exciting. It got it got old after probably a couple years. I think for like the first 2 years I enjoyed it. Yeah. I I know you got sick of it, you know, on a sort of personal level, but also you were sort of developing a sense of like what you wanted the band to be and what you wanted the band to stand for and the kind of the kind of career you wanted to have, right? Yes. Talk about that. Where where, where did that come from? Was it just observing other bands or Yeah, I got into, you know, you when you're young, you also get the you're very impressionable about like at least in the the early 90s like the idea of like selling out started to like play come into play where i was like oh can't be on a major label like reading maximum rock and roll and like being into like the ethics of fugazi and discord records and so i bought into all that and i was like okay we can't do bars anymore we have to only play all ages we need to keep our ticket prices low so i i kind of followed those ideas that i had seen from in particular from fugazi and thought like well how can i can i transcribe those kind of ideas into what we're doing even though it's musically very different and so there was there was pushback because the band members enjoyed just playing they wanted to play because those bar shows even though i hated them they paid us well we would get like even back then in the early 90s, we'd get a couple thousand dollars. They would give us a condo to stay at. So it was, it was very comfortable touring mm-hmm. versus playing an all-age show. When we were coming up trying to like build that all-age audience, some of those shows you'd get like 100 bucks, 150. Eventually it grew to be quite profitable. But those, uh, those early all-age shows of trying to build up that audience, there were some, definitely nights where we were roughing it. To say the very least. It was so what did you say to convince them to do this? I think I was just adamant about like this is what we need to do as a band to get the right fan base instead of let's not be seen as a bar band. Let's be seen as a legit band that's not uh like what I see bar bands as you're almost like an attraction at a zoo. You're there to there to entertain them versus a band that kids go to see to pay money to see if that makes sense like we just happen to be you have a group of young college kids going out to this bar maybe they've heard of us and like oh there's this crazy band there but a lot of times they're just going because that's the hip bar in town and there's going to be a lot of people and then we're this this we're these animals as the attraction at the zoo and i just hated that feeling that we didn't have the command of everyone's attention. I don't want, like when I play music, I want people to concentrate. I don't want to be like, I don't want people talking over us. I mean, I remember playing acoustic when I started playing acoustic, I couldn't hang when people were talking. I would just tell people to shut up 
because in an acoustic <laughs> setting, it's impossible to not hear people talking. When you're playing loud music, you can you can mask the sound. But yeah, I just wanted a different vibe. I felt like we needed to we needed to change our direction. Yeah, I mean, it seems like it was the right choice too. I mean, you you guys did really well, and you you built an audience, you know. And I feel like if you go back to the mid eight mid nineties, like Skank and Pickle were one of the biggest bands, one of the leading bands in that scene. Like it's not quite remembered that way because other bands got bigger after. But but I remember back at that time it was like like Boss Tones and Skank and Pickle were sort of like the big nineties ska bands. The Toasters. Toasters. There are, there are only a handful of bands that toured from that era from the early nineties. So Toasters, Bim Scalabim, Let's Go Bowling, Skank and Pickle. I think were the like the the core bands that were touring early on and consistently. And then the next wave were like MU three thirty, Blue Meanies, Johnny Sacco, mm-hmm. Bucko Nine, Mustard Plug, uh, yeah. Mustard Plug, Suicide Machines. But like early bands that were touring, I'd say, yeah, Pickle, Let's Go Bowling, Toasters, um, Bim Scullabim. So of all those bands, you guys were really the only ska punk one. Yeah. And we got a lot of backlash. It was very different. Like that early ska, uh, early 90s ska, there were a lot of purists and they did not like ska punk. And we were not liked by the purists. Yeah, I want to talk about that. So do you, do you have any personal experience? Like what were some of the experiences you had at shows? Was it just bad looks or what was it like? Yeah, the bass player, let's go back to Mike Mattingly. He loved confrontation, so he didn't mind it. Like <laughs> he well, he wa- he wanted to like like he would stare people down and like get in their faces and I I didn't like that. I mean, I don't like confrontation in the first place. And I remember it could be because I had been part of the ska scene even before Skank and Pickle and people would tell me like, "You know, we like you. We just don't like your band." Oh my god, that's cool. That's cool. And we so we just developed we stopped playing ska shows. We were playing non-ska shows in the Bay Area, at least. And even L.A., we got to the point where we're like, we got to stop playing these these ska shows. They, they're horrible. It was it was they'd be like seven bands. We'd be the only non uh, like two tonish band or or traditional style band. So we started playing with just like we played with Excel. We played with uh, Infectious Grooves. We played with. We started just playing with weird bands. We played with missing persons. <laughs> <laughs> so like anytime we could play a different kind of show in LA, we started doing that. And that's how we started to branch out into different uh, genres of people seeing us. And I felt like we kind of developed our own scene almost. Yeah. So those, you got a good reception from most of those audiences. I think so. Especially the, like uh, in the nineties when that, funk punk thrash scene like with primus we had played with primus a couple times and uh fungo mungo mr bungle those shows is where we excelled i remember we played like a all-day funk fest like (laughs) funk metal fest i mean it was like one of the hottest days of summer like 15 bands that we played main support and when we came out it was just like an explosion i remember just like I think I was wearing a full ninja outfit <laughs> and, just, <laughs> and just like suicide flip first note just, and it's just like chaos. 
So my first experience seeing Skank and Pickle was like 1992 at One Step Beyond. Uh-huh. Like it was June. I found out that it was like like in June. I don't know. I have no idea if you remember the show at all. Cherry Pop and Daddies were the one of the opening bands. Yeah, I remember that. Okay, so one of my memories of that show is that you stage dive. You and Mike Mattingly stage dive constantly through the entire show. Like every song, at least once, if not a couple times. Both of you guys were just leaping into the audience. We're just trying to be like Fishbone. <laughs> Seriously, we're just like, it's all Fishbone wannabes. Was there a point where you were like, okay, I'm done with stage diving? Yeah, 100%. Because it just became where, as we got more popular, the more people wanted to stage dive. And I felt like that's all people want to do. Like, they don't even care. We could be playing anything. They're just like stage diving. Mm-hmm. And, and I could just see, and I'd see it in people's faces, like getting the kids who were getting smashed, like by the stage divers. It's not fun, and so that's when I decided, okay, I gotta. I'm trying to think if I actually said something where I was like, you know, don't stage dive, stop, stop it. I I can't remember if I did or not, but I think after Skank and Pickle stopped, and I. And whenever I did do shows with like the Bruce Bruce Lee band, I really discouraged stage diving from then on. But I don't know if I had done that during the pickle days. When it was a transition to Ian Miller being your bass player, mm-hmm. I remember Skank and Pickle being kind of pretty different in a lot of ways. It wasn't just that you no longer had Mike Mattingly's songs. I felt like it was more like you were a punk band in a lot of the in the ways you guys carried yourself on stage. I mean, you still did some fun stuff but it wasn't like such a such a performance or a theatrical thing like the early days were yeah that was intentional because the the clown was gone mm-hmm. and we wanted to be a more serious band and we didn't want it to rely on the novelty sticks even though some of those novelty sticks were amazing yeah they got old because we were doing them every night i was like oh god here we go. <laughs> <laughs> but if you had seen it, if it was the first time you'd ever seen some of that stuff, it's pretty funny. Pretty mind blowing. Oh, yeah. I remember first show, just like uh, Mike Madden comes out on his unicycle at one point. Well, the he had a wig. The wig looked so real. Yeah, yeah. Not only am I the hair club president, but I'm also a client. And it's a it was a good wig. Like he looked like this normal guy with this wig and. I have one good story about Mike Mattingly. Early on in the ska realm of going to shows and Pickle's first shows, there were a lot of Nazi skinheads, too, that would go to shows. I remember there's this big Nazi skinhead named Patty. And he was probably like six foot three and like big, muscly. Mattingly is a muscly guy, but muscular guy, but he's small. He's probably like five, eight. He got in a full brawl with the guy and it was scary. Like we were scared. So Mattingly and Mattingly kind of got scared because again, this guy's huge. So he got broken up and Mattingly got his wig and put it on to disguise himself. And it totally, <laughs> it totally worked. I was like, Oh my God, that's great. <laughs> wow. Did that die down then at some point? This like this pro- Nazi problem? Yes. Eventually, especially <laughs> <laughs> Once it became mainstream, like success of ska in the late 90s, mid to late 90s, 
yeah, that didn't exist anymore. But I remember going back to the Full Moon Saloon, that Patty guy. So imagine Hate Street in San Francisco. It was like out of a movie. It was crazy. And running down the middle of Hate Street is Patty, followed by at least 30 skidheads trying to beat the shit out of him. It was the most insane, like, visual. <laughs> like, right down 8th Street. And, uh, yeah, it was a problem. And it was a problem even in the, the punk scene, too. Like, Gilman Street had a lot of problems with Nazi skinheads for a long time, them them showing up at shows. I heard a story from Jerry. I don't know the context, but I know he said that he, he, he told me some story about how he was chased down the street by a bunch of Nazis. And uh, that he was just yelling, like, I'm just a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I love it. He is. It's funny because, you know, Jerry's a big guy. He's like 6'4". And, yeah. You know, in his prime, a muscular guy. But he was just such a such a gentle mouse of a, of a yeah. human being. So I could never see him get violent. No. <laughs> You told me the story once about um, the show you guys did in uh, Southern California. I think it was at this bar called the Nomads or Nomads. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nomads. Okay. By, it's <laughs> over by UCLA. I want, uh, yeah. Go ahead. I want to hear the story. So we had, we were on tour. We had this show booked at this 21 and over bar called Nomads. I think we had a hundred dollar guarantee. I mean, there's not, not even one person there. <laughs> And then eventually one guy comes in and it was a black kid with dreads and a fishbone shirt. So we had this one guy there and then the owner of the bar just comes up to me and gives me the hundred dollars and says, you know, it'll be cheaper for us to just close. You know, here's your money. And I said, I gave him back the hundred dollars. I said, can we just play for free? And he said, yeah. I said, you know, keep the money if you let us play. And so he let us play for this one kid. and. It was great. Like we we put on the full show. Like we shit crazy. Like we we're playing for twenty thousand people. He danced the whole show. Like we talked to him after he bought a, a record and a shirt. And I always thought, like, man, you know, we made a lifetime fan. Like I bet we'll see him forever. We never saw him again. Which <laughs> sucks. Like where? What happened? It was such like a bonding experience, but. Um, never saw him again, but that was, yeah, we, we just wanted to play. I think our, our goal was as long as we can make one fan at a show, it's the show is worth it. Like people talk about, oh yeah, we will play crazy for, you know, audience of like five or eight or whatever. But the idea of playing to one person, it sounds yeah. like a completely different experience than five people. Oh, totally. Cause then it's like all eyes are on. <laughs> The one All person, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was awesome because he danced too. He danced, and we were going crazy, <laughs> like I mean, out of control. And then at the end, the owner still gave us the hundred dollars again. Said, "Oh, that was great." <laughs> I was like, yes. Did you really start to notice your fan base grow when you switched over to the all ages thing? Is that yeah? For sure. Because what I was saying earlier about you guys seeming like on the lead is like when I when I toured with you guys, which I believe was 95. Yeah, it was a, the tour. It was me and Mida and you guys toured the Midwest. And I, it was like right before Ska had like some sort of mainstream thing going on. Mm -hmm. You guys played what felt like pretty big venues to me. Yeah, we did. They were big venues. Yeah. 
we had played like I believe it was the Ogden in in Denver, which is over a thousand cap. Yeah, the Metro in Chicago, which is over a thousand capacity, um, and then smaller places too, of course. But but you did First Avenue in, in, in Minneapolis. Yeah, right? that's right. And that was that's like fifteen or fourteen hundred. Yeah, it's over a thousand too. So now, see, the thing I remember is just because I, you know, some overhear you guys talking. I just, I remember overhearing you guys say like, "Oh man, we this show sold out in advance," mm-hmm. and this was the first Avenue show. Ah, and I was that's that's the moment where it really clicked in my head. I'm like, "Wow, I can't believe I really didn't understand how big you guys were as a as a DIY band that you were able to sell out a venue of that size that was nowhere near your hometown." Yeah, it was it was exciting. I think that that tour is really surreal for me because I was such a big fan of Seven Seconds, and the fact that they were opening just seemed strange and yeah, uh, like kind of like we were not worthy of of doing that. But it, it also just kind of showed me how big the underground ska boom was was occurring at the time, and what was I felt like something that was just going to explode into the mainstream which obviously it did it really seemed like you guys were gonna lead it <laughs> i mean at least from my point of view just because of like the position you guys were in and, and we could have if we didn't break up if we hadn't broken up yeah um we we still could have but um no one will ever know <laughs> <laughs> i remember seeing i saw your second to last show with san jose taiko drumming at san jose state yeah what do you remember about that show? I remember that was it. I was done. I was like, I am done. This is, this sucks. I hate doing this. I lived right down the street from San Jose State too. So I remember walking home after the show and I'm just like going, I, I don't, how can I do this anymore? And I think that's when I told the band, I think I told the band, like, I need to, I need a break. Mm-hmm. I need a break. And if you guys want to keep going, let me know. I said, I'll still keep doing the record label because we had our own record label. And the next day was the last show was at UC Santa Barbara. And then they said, we want to keep going. I said, okay. And then I remember driving home. I had driven up separately because at that point, I would think I was flying to most of the shows too that were far away because I just couldn't hang in the van anymore. And... uh they, after we decided they're going to keep going, I, when I was driving home was when I thought I need to do Asian Man Records. I need to do do it on my own because it's going to be not good for business having me part of the the record label anymore. So um, that's that's when a- Asian Man was born. It was on that drive home from UC Santa Barbara. The strongest memory I have of that of that show at San Jose State was that the whole audience was shouting for a for a you know an encore uh-huh and you just went over and started taking apart the drums <laughs> you just started taking the cymbals off you're like nope and i remember thinking like wow that's that's so weird yeah and then it made total sense like when i heard that you'd left the band a couple of days later yeah that's that sounds about right i think i was i remember kind of being mean to someone in in Arizona like someone like trying to talk to me and I was breaking down the drums because I just wanted to get the hell out of there it was really it was unfair for the other band members too because I was so unhappy Mm -hmm. 
Were you were you unhappy with the, was it the driving or just did you just couldn't stand playing live as much as you were playing? Yeah, I just didn't enjoy it. I was going through the motions. It was very faked, faked enjoyment on stage, and it just felt like, why am I doing this? I'm not even. I'm just pretending to be like, oh, this is great. Mm-hmm. I'm great. We're having so much fun. No, I was miserable, and it was. I was. It was not fair to people coming to the show. So that's uh, that's why it was it needed. It needed to end. So, like, let's step back a little bit. Uh, you talked about starting Asian Man, but um, back in uh, I think it's like 1991, you got a Skank and Pickle got a record deal offer from Restless. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So it was that the first time anyone had said like we want to sign you to our label? Yes, that was crazy because we were so early on. You know, we were just a brand new band, and Restless had had released a lot of our favorite records, like They Might Be Giants and The Untouchables. And we we're like, whoa! And I remember our our booking agent, the not Rick Bondi, but the other one, Susan Roth, calling us like, "Good news, I think we got you a record deal." We're like, what? <laughs> So why did you say no? Tell me about that whole process. So I believe at the time the MC Hammer, like behind the music had come out mm-hmm. on, v- on VH1. And I remember watching it and Hammer talking about turning down his first major label offer. He kind of did the math and said, you know, I, I would make more doing it myself. So at the time, this was when I started getting into that, like, those punk ethos of DIY and kind of realizing that a lot of my favorite bands were run, they were running their own labels. So like with uh, Ian Mackay and Discord and Greg Ginn and SST and Fat Mike and Fat Records. So kind of did the same thing. It's like, why can't we do it ourselves? And that was the reason. So you, so it's Dill Records. I mean, you were you already Dill Records technically at that point? Yeah. Like on our first demo tape, we just, you know, Xerox copy that said Dill Records on the spine. But then you really took the idea seriously at that point in terms of like releasing your own music. I think after the, when we got the first CD put out, the Scafunk Rasta Punk CD, that's when it felt real. Like, oh, we're going to, you know, this is our label. And we kind of ran with that like idea of like being this west coast ska version of discord and even though we were releasing bands out of our city where discord just releases dc bands but i wanted to like do something similar but on in the ska world it was tantra monsters that was the first band right the first yeah okay Mm -hmm. to me tantra monsters are so sort of one of the lost like great 90s ska bands Uh uh-huh what was about that band that you thought that would be the good first band i think in addition to being a good band they were just really nice people and that goes a long way especially for me because when we had first toured hawaii the precursor to the tantra monsters was a band called mr simon and they opened up for us and we just we really bonded with them i think they invited us to like a a barbecue and we just hung out and next time we went tantra monsters were formed and they were even better now and we're like oh let's bring them out on tour let's put out their record and so that was that was the beginning and you did like a two-month tour with them right when when they released the record god was it that long i don't i i doubt it could have been that long for them i don't think our part was that long i know they stayed forever 
in the mainland playing shows. Yeah, and that tour too. Jerry had like a medical issue with his leg or something mm-hmm. in in Boston. So Ryan or Shige, uh, he took over for Jerry, right? So did Caesar. We took both their horn players and, and played as a four piece horn section. So I've seen some footage of uh, of them mm-hmm. of Shige. The footage of Shige, like Shige brought an entirely different energy to Pickle than anybody else in Pickle. Mm. Like I remember seeing you would do the, uh, was it Larry Smith, right? Where you would introduce each band member. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Kevin Dill, he would show me like this cut of like various versions of Shige coming out. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it would be oh, like. Yeah. Him naked. <laughs> just naked oh, yeah. With an ice scoop covering his genitals. <laughs> But he also had this like crazy like serial killer look on his face too. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> the first band though that really did well for Dill Records was that Lesson Jake's uh, Pezcore. Yeah, that one was that one was crazy. Like right off the bat, I had made a demo tape. I don't know if it was the tour you were on, but I was brought that out on tour with me, and I just put a little sign up. I said. Like ska punk from Gainesville, Florida. Um, no effects meets the specials. I think <laughs> that was the description. And people were just buying it. I think I was selling it for two bucks. People were buying it with, without ever even hearing it. And I remember selling hundreds of them. And huh. it, that's again, that's when I felt like, wow, something, this is happening. Like there is people just want anything ska, they'll give it a shot. The thing about like, you know, you're you're, like one of the most like, uh, like ethical and like kind of honest upfront sort of people that own labels, but you also have a good sense of how things will do. So did you like, what was it about Lesson Jake? Like, cause you guys played with ska bands all the time, but you, you saw them live or you heard their tape and you kind of just knew that they were going to be a band that people were going to take an interest in yeah well you never you never know i just like them they opened up for us in gainesville they gave us a bunch of music and i remember listening it to to it in the van and all the other members not liking it (laughs) and i was just like no this is really good and so i called them i said i want to do a record that was it (laughs) so that predated misfits of ska right yeah okay but Mrs. Scott came pretty quick after that. Right? Yeah, I'd say it's all within the, within months of each other. Misfits of Ska, though, that's an interesting turning point of Ska and popular culture because you, Mike, because that was your project, right? Mm-hmm. You captured a lot of the main bands, whether the ones that got signed or the ones that were just sort of like the big indie bands of that scene. Like they're all on, like almost all on that record. Yeah, I. I truly believe with all my heart there were a and r guys from major labels just going down the list mm-hmm. and scouting every band and uh picking who they wanted to sign so but for you you were just you were just like these were just bands that you knew from tour or mm-hmm. did you have a sense that this was going to be an important sort of release or documentation of that era as it was happening no i knew it was a good comp but that's about it I mean, comps were dime a dozen in those days. So um, I was just another dime. (laughs) (laughs) How many different versions of the layout did you have to do? Uh, There's three that I can think of 
off the top of my head. What was the first cease and desist you got? Well, that I've only had one cease and desist, and that was the I used the Bride of Frankenstein like <laughs> right off, like from maybe I got from the library, so it's like super clear, like scanned it in like high res. <laughs> just use the Misfits logo. It just says Misfits in the Misfits logo of Ska. It's a great cover. But I never got a cease and desist for that. On the back of the CD, I used the picture of Godzilla. And that's what I got a cease and desist from. Which I could have gotten in a lot of trouble with. But I just happened to use... Uh, I licensed the album to Japan. And the company I was working with, the like the old Shacho, which is like the boss... Happened to be friends with Toho Enterprise, the the boss of the Godzilla franchise, and I, he was able to smooth it out. So I just had to, I had to stop. <laughs> Issues with Misfits as well. That was so. Caroline Records called me. The lawyer for Caroline Records called me and said, "You can't." It, that was just cease and desist. There's no like um, legal uh, filings for monetary uh, damages or anything. He just. He just said, you can't use, I straight up used the Legacy of Brutality logo on the face of the CD. <laughs> that, that art is so good, too. It's just like, the, I used the Crimson Ghost, Misfits of Ska. The, oh, it's, I wish I had a version of it. I'm sure it exists. Many people have it because we sold a ton of those. But uh, yeah, that was just a cease and desist for that. And this isn't related to Misfits of Ska, but when you did the Bruce Lee band, a little while later that you got, you got into issues with that too, is right as well. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> just happened to be the, the CD manufacturing company I picked. The general manager was Robert Lee, which was Bruce Lee's half brother. And he just called me and said, Hey, you know, I don't own any of this stuff. Universal owns it, but I'm Bruce Lee's brother and I know they're going to go after you. And also, we as a company cannot print any of this because it's all copyright infringement. And again, I just straight up had Bruce Lee's face on the <laughs> cover and on the back and on the inside. And the CD face was just Bruce Lee, like just a full picture of Bruce Lee. Killer art. And it actually made it in like this Japanese book about Bruce Lee, yeah, like a really high production book of just everything bruce lee related and there's a picture of that cd in that book i don't know how they found it but i got off uh i got off scot-free on that one too <laughs> were you more careful after that or was it just coincidence yes. yeah okay yes more careful but i'm still willing to live dangerously i still i still try to get away with having to pay like a mechanical royalties on covered songs i kind of wait until they contact me and they go oh you need to pay mechanicals and i go oh okay <laughs> i'll do that how many different people have played in bruce lee band so the first band first album was lesson jake everyone in lesson jake minus buddy second album was everyone in rx bandits minus the trombone player i forgot his name chris sheets chris sheets and then the third record was what is the current lineup minus mike huguenor so it's rosenstock and kevin higuchi ever since then it's rosenstock higuchi and potas that's what we'll keep as the core for recording and then we'll just have guests 
fill in to do vocals, guest vocals and horns and stuff like that. So Misfits of Ska, though, it was a, there was a philosophy behind it, though. It was, you were making a statement. Yeah. yeah tell me about it that. It was just like the bands we were, as we started touring, we found bands who were like-minded that were kind of dealing with the same issues of us as we were of not being accepted by purists. So we were kind of the Misfits of Ska. And that's, that was the premise of this compilation. Yeah, it's interesting how the misfits of ska, the the you know the the bands who were the misfits of the ska scene became the dominant bands in the scene. Yeah, yeah. Was that a surprise to you that that's what happened, or did it just seem inevitable that that's would have been the bands that would have taken off? Would the... yeah, I think it seemed inevitable, but I didn't know like which bands that would happen to. So, um, but I did feel like yeah, this was becoming more the norm, and a lot had to do with the you know the mighty mighty Boston popularity, and then the continued success of operation ivy like every band from that era was every scott punk band at least was heavily influenced by operation ivy what was the deal with dill like before you before you left gang pickle it was a joint label but it was kind of a label you ran too yeah i did all the work (laughs) (laughs) but there was some albums there was some albums that the whole band released and some of them that you released specifically yeah, so the Less Than Jake record, Misfits of Ska, Slapstick, Bruce Lee Band, those four, I did all the work. And then they started bringing in ideas of bands they wanted to work with. And so that was before like my departure. Mm-hmm. But that's when I knew, I saw the writing on the wall. I was like, this ain't going to work. You can't have six people deciding what to put out. Like they were, at the time, Lynette was living in the Mission. She was very involved in the Mission punk scene. So she wanted to put out bands like the Bar Feeders and Hickey, and I wasn't into it. I mean, the, the, this, just the names you rattled off for the, your releases, those are all like really successful, too. Those first four releases were extremely successful. And then the, the fifth release was Link 80, 17 Reasons, which was also very successful. So when you said, I'm going to start Asian Man Records... Did you say to yourself, I'm taking my releases? Was that an initial thought as well? Yes. And the thing is, the bands were, they were confused. Like, they didn't know what to do. Like, Less Than Jake and ME330, because they were friends with, you know, the other members too. So it wasn't, it wasn't as easy as saying, I'm going, you're coming with me. I let them decide. And they made the right choice. <laughs> <laughs> And did anybody uh, say no? No, thanks, Mike. Of course not. <laughs> <laughs> what was the first official Asian Man release that was had nothing to do with Dill? Link eighty seventeen reasons. Oh, oh, that was because that wasn't a Dill release then. Nope. Oh, okay, okay, got it. And so, yeah, Asian Man. I just feel like it kind of did extremely well, like right away, right? Oh, it was insane. Like, made no sense. So, just think about. I was 26, first year ever running a label. We grossed over a million dollars <laughs> in my parents' garage. Wild. Made no sense. There's like so much happening in Scott in those years, but um, you have, and you still have Moon Records, you still have Jump Up Records, you have major labels also, and then you have other like punk labels that are doing some ska stuff as well. But I feel like nowadays, People, you know, you, you talk to them about Scott, they want to talk about Asian Man. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, I was into Scott, I was into Asian Man bands. Like, I feel like the sort of 
the longevity or the the quality of those bands have really held up pretty consistently well. Yeah, I mean, if you really look at the big picture, we didn't release that much ska over the last 25 years. I think maybe 20% of the catalog is ska. Yeah. So I find it I find it entertaining to see how <laughs> how much we're included in like the ska boom that's happening now and I'm all for it obviously because why wouldn't I? But uh, <laughs> we put out good records. It was, uh, you know, being fortunate enough to put out Slapstick and Lesson Jake and MU330 and Link 80. It's like four of the biggest bands from that third wave. Yeah. And even the bands that weren't like super big, like Slow Gherkin, you know, like these are bands that like the recordings hold up, like they're still really good. Oh, for sure. You can like listen back to them and say, like, oh, maybe if you weren't from that era, like who's Slow Gherkin? And then you listen to it, and it's like, oh, this is a good band. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, Blue Meanies, too, Johnny Sacco. Yeah. Um, yeah, a lot of good stuff. The the Scott era, though, I mean, I don't know. I'm not, there's not like a clear cut line where it's became less Scott, but there was, you know, I think of like the, uh, the post Slastic bands, you have a kind of a shift, like the Broadways and the Alkaline Trio and all that stuff. Yeah. That's kind of like a like a new era in a way, right? For Asian man, I guess not. You know, and there was no intention of changing. It was the goal was always to put out whatever I wanted. So a lot of those early releases, I think the eleventh release is the Broadways. I'm trying to think. So fifth one is Link Eighty. Six is Misfits of Scott Two. Seventh is Mu Three Thirty Press. Eight is Mu Three Thirty chumps on parade nine is slapstick collection 10 is something (laughs) (laughs) that's a little fuzzy i used to know all the releases by number um but yeah i think number 11 is broadways and then comes tuesday then came alkaline trio then like korea girl uh so it started being the, the the diversity started to come into play one of those bands was honor system and recently you were posting about posting about hating autotune. Yeah. And that's one of the first records I remember hearing autotune on. What did you think when you heard that recording? I thought, man, there's a lot of autotune on this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a, the songs are really good. I'm, I think um, Matt Allison, I think what, that might have been when he first started getting getting into using autotune. And he, he just didn't know how to use it properly because it's... Some of the stuff is really weird. Yeah, it's like, yep. I'm like, dude, he can sing too, so I didn't understand. Yeah, I remember it really sticking out, especially the these nails can build. Yeah, anything we want. Yeah, exactly. So Adam was telling, uh, it was like an episode not that long ago. He was talking about how um, Link '80s, uh, the struggle continues, and uh, Alkaline Trio, uh, maybe I'll catch fire. They came out in the same month. Yeah, hella and shitty. Yes. <laughs> Who? Which band told you they wanted to call their album out first? <laughs> it was like at the same time. So it was Link 80 wanted to call their album Hella, and then Alkaline Trio, maybe I'll catch fire. They wanted to call it Shitty. <laughs> and I said, why? This is the worst name. <laughs> I think both both titles, The Struggle Continues versus Hella, and maybe I'll catch fire versus Shitty are such better titles. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Trio came to you first though because you were you were already pissed about it. 
and then we said we wanted to call yeah. ours hella. I feel like I feel like you would have let hella slip by if they hadn't called theirs shitty. I was so taken aback by them saying we're gonna call it shitty. I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> it kind of fits with goddammit, though. It look, like looking back, maybe, but I just think maybe I'll catch fire is just such a better title, especially what they were going for at that time. They were like trying to be this. This emo part of this Midwest emo scene. I can, you know, Hella. Hella seems like it, it's a negotiable title, but Shitty seems like wow. I would be, I would be so weirded out if I was a fan and the band just called the album Shitty. <laughs> it just seemed like like <laughs> something you would see like in like a Limp Bizkit, Insane Cl- Clown Posse like crossover band. Yeah, with their new album Shitty. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so. I want to hear this story. Um, I think your first or one of your first interactions with Jess, Jeff Rogas, Rosenstock was arrogant sons of bitches uh, wanting to do like a uh, parking lot show. Is that is that how it goes? Yeah, we we used to do a lot of like fun stuff for the community. Like we would do like day at the amusement park. I think Adam Davis came to the Asian Man Amusement Park Day. Definitely. Yeah. And then we started doing like baseball, go to the Oakland A's games and we would just set up in the parking lot and barbecue and I would put it on my newsletter. So they, they were on tour and they saw that we were doing that and they didn't have a show. So they came and they wanted to play. I didn't let them play. <laughs> I should have, but they just hung out for the barbecue. So, so you didn't, but that also, you didn't know them at all at that point, right? I didn't know them at all. No. Okay, so they hung out, and did you become friends at that time, or? Yeah, you know, we just well, at least it was on my radar, mm-hmm. and I had played like a house show in Long Island, and Jeff was at the show. He was friends with my friend Chris Candy, um, so I I met him again there, and then it just kind of um, I kind of again on my radar and kind of noticing the cool things he was doing with with Bomb, um, just playing solo with an iPod and having his merch, having no merch and kind of following that Fugazi uh, model of running a band, all ages, cheap shows, etc. But you eventually did start to do shows at the, at the parking lot or tailgating, right? Yeah. I stole that. I, their idea of wanting to play. And I said, maybe I should actually do that. <laughs> What kind of bands did you have, like full-on punk bands or ska bands, or was it more acoustic? Yeah. We had Lawrence Arms played. We had Classics of Love. AJJ played. Um, Toys of Kill. God, who else? Like Shinobu. I remember Shinobu playing, going crazy. We had a lot of bands play. It was it's cool. Yeah. And did you ever have any trouble with the security or the police no that's what's what's crazy and they would come up they would ride the security would ride up on their bikes kind of watch and i would i remember talking to them i'm like hey how's it going you want some cds and they're like yeah (laughs) (laughs) i specifically remember seeing classics of love and them covering uh operation ivy and jesse michaels climbing up on top of it must have been your trailer wow i i remember that i remember him i remember him climbing up the trailer and jumping off but i don't remember them playing op ivy at that yeah show. That's that crazy. was while they were playing op ivy i should have recorded it <laughs> it's lost to the sands of time now you should have recorded it i know adam god 
I know. I didn't have anything to record it on at the time, probably. I still had a flip phone, I bet. No excuses. No excuses. I should have had a video camera with me. Ryan Noble would have. <laughs> <laughs> he had a video camera all the time. I know. I want to talk a little bit about the Chinkies. Can we do that? Oh, God. Mm-hmm. Well, one of my favorite things about the Chinkies is that it was kind of a fictional band in a way. Mm-hmm. You, when you started it, it was just you. And mm-hmm. and then you basically just enlisted the dudes in slapstick to play the music. So that wasn't even when we recorded that record, that wasn't intended for any project other than a recording project. Oh, it wasn't even the chinkies at that point. No. So we had, after recording it, I, I had been toying with the idea of starting this all Asian band and that's why I thought, okay, I've got this record. I'm going to just call it the Chinkies and then um, start playing with this band, like recruiting members to play in this band. And that had been like something I'd wanted to do since high school. Because I was in, in high school, I was in a band called YWCA, which stood for Yellows with Chink Attitude. Yellows with Chink Attitude. <laughs> you understand? You get it? You got YWCA. <laughs> And we went to a predominantly white school, and we were the entire. For my class, that was every Asian American male was in this band. <laughs> Garvin Yee, myself, Jeff Lum, Frank Ho, and uh, Greg Alessandro, and Yellows with Chink Attitude, the great <laughs> Yellows with Chink Attitude. I think my my favorite thing with the Chinkies that kind of stuck through with me was that it could be you can just have a band and it doesn't even have to be an actual thing. Like as long as there are songs that are recorded, it doesn't really matter who's on the recordings. You know, if you just put it out and put a name on it, everybody will see it as an actual band. Sure. That's not how it should be, but (laughs) I mean, it happens all the time. Like people don't realize so many of the bands you're listening to, You'd be surprised at how little that band is actually the, the people you see on stage live are actually playing it mm-hmm. in the studio. I, w- I want to hear a little bit. You had some of the Link 80 guys record a chinky song. Oh, really? I didn't know that. What do you remember about that? So it was it was Joey, Adam Pereira. My favorite member of Link 80 <laughs> is this guy named Adam Pereira. <laughs> and Nick, the original singer. I think I had, I, I can't remember. It's been so long, but. I feel like Nick at the time, you know, he he had been always been dealing with like almost bipolar, emotional roller coaster of a, of a person. I think he was like kind of a little down at the time. And I said, "Come into the studio, let's just have some fun." I could be totally wrong on this, but that's something that just popped in my head when you just brought this up. Yeah, and I so maybe that's why I did it. And I said, "Here, just play. Let's just play a super easy." ska song i'll teach you and let's do it that's all i can remember it's been so long (laughs) (laughs) i think if i if i remember right there might there might be two wasn't there more like a like almost like a grind type song oh yeah but nick nick just sang yeah nick did all the vocals on that one yeah but nobody nobody knows that because this is all distorted and crazy what what that's right what is this is this an ep or what that's the first Chinkies yeah, it's record. on the first Chinkies record. Oh, okay. And then there's also the hidden track. That's you. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that you? Yeah. So I had you come. Didn't you do that? Yeah. We had like a, 
I can't remember what class I was taking at, at Gavlin College, but I had you come talk to my class about Asian Man Records. I don't remember that at all. <laughs> yeah, but then afterwards, oh my gosh, I have no memory. I think you were you did a a few of these at the time, so they probably don't even register. But then afterwards, I had to go to the computer music lab for a class, which was uh, taught by Art Junker, uh, our friend AJ's dad. Okay, and. I was in there and I think I showed you something that I'd made on the, on the computer. And you were like, Oh, you should make like, just like a long, weird techno song to go at the end of this record. And I was like, all right. <laughs> so I made this thing in the MIDI lab. I like put a bunch of different stuff together, but then I think school ended and I hadn't finished it. So I had to go to like art junkers studio that was in the old Gilroy city hall. And he had a different keyboard in there. He had a Kurzweil and I'd been programming all this stuff on a Korg computer. And at the time, MIDI was just, it's just signals saying how long a note should be and at what pitch. But if you switch your keyboard, it completely changes the sounds. So I had to reassign all the sounds to the song. And then the only thing I had to sample was a VHS copy of Monty Python, Search for the Holy Grail and a video VHS copy of Pulp Fiction. And so I just cut out all these like horrible racist samples and put them in there manually into the audio. And then I was getting all, there was like the electrical in this building was bad. And so I kept getting all this weird buzzing. So I recorded it twice to an ADAT tape and then gave you the ADAT tape saying, just put the second one on. And you put... You put both. You put both versions, so it plays. <laughs> it plays twice at the end of the Chinkies album, and it sounds god awful. Is that on Spotify? Like, if you put it on, ah, uh, yes, I'm pretty sure it is. I'm gonna check right now. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember um, when you were putting together the actual live band of Chinkies, and um, you could not find a drummer at first? Yes, and then you said, "I was living at your house at the time." And you and you had a tour booked, and you're like, okay, Carnes, if I can't find a drummer, you're gonna go on tour with me, and you're just gonna wear a mask. I don't remember that, but it's something I could see myself doing. <laughs> and I was like, nice, this is gonna be fun. And then you found a drummer. <laughs> so Adam, I'm looking at the last track of the first Chinky's record, forty six minutes. <laughs> yep, that's my fault. Forty two seconds. That's my fault. I love it. I love it. <laughs> Was the only Chinkies tour that tour that we did the Misfits or was it called the Misfits of Ska tour right in Europe? No, we had, we had done Japan a bunch, okay. and the Chinkies went back to the UK with Potshot also. Okay, we were a big deal, Adam. You were a very big deal. <laughs> what do you remember about about the tour we did together? <laughs> <laughs> Where do you start? We only had, I think we had. 16 seats but we had 17 people let's start with that <laughs> one person had to sit on the ground which was usually the drummer of link 80 we had a pedophile driver named barney <laughs> um it was wild i yeah <laughs> you know like looking back you think Oh, that was pretty amazing, which it was. There were some amazing times, but that was that was a lot of work. I remember there Put there a were a couple of shows where you, you bailed on the van and just started taking the train between shows. You just could not deal anymore. Sounds right. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember throwing up after the Italy show? 
only in photos. Somehow, Greg captured that on film. Yeah. Not on digital camera, on film. Projectile vomit, and he's got yeah. it. Like, I have the picture. Yeah, you, you posted that I recently. Post I, I saw it, like, within the last year, I think. Oh, did I post yeah. it? Oh, my God. It's so good. Okay. And I know Jerry ate something out of my throw up later that oh. I was told. Yep. I, I was there for that. Oh. I saw that happen. You're very, you're very lucky. He, went, he <laughs> experience. took a chunk of your vomit and, oh. and ate it and go, yup, that's Mike. Guys, those are what good friends do. <laughs> if you want to stay friends with Mike, you got to eat his puke. Oh God. I can't even. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Ska. If you haven't already, subscribe to my newsletter at aaroncarnes.substack.com. You will get episodes of the In Defense of Ska podcast and other content sent directly to your inbox. If you would like to order my book, In Defense of Ska, you can go to Amazon, request it at your favorite indie bookstore or library, or go to clashbooks.com. And on that note, we leave you by saying... Ska now more than ever. Thank you. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA, and they include camping. Russ. How do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Hey, everybody. It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ... How do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.